0: For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, it is extremely difficult to understand how people could not like him and even hate him. I remember a newspaper article I read a while back about a group of Jewish believers in Jesus who went to the beach in Tel Aviv and set up a little table to pass out tracts and CDs and books to their fellow Jewish kinsmen. Because the material was about Jesus as the Messiah, a group of Jewish people became very angry, grabbed the materials, threw them to the ground, threw them in the sand, stomped on them, kicked down the tables, and began a small but violent riot. Why? Why such a reaction? Because they don't like Jesus, which would be grossly understating the issue. Why don't people like Jesus? Here's the answer. Because he is a threat to them and their beliefs and their choices and their lifestyle and their religion and other things. This is true today, just as it was true back in the first century. Many people today don't like Jesus, and many people didn't like him when he was here on the earth. In fact, opposition against Jesus grew gradually throughout his ministry until eventually there was a murderous hatred toward him. We see a glimpse of that sad reality in the text to which we come this morning in Mark chapter 3. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. In our ongoing study through Mark, we move this morning into the third chapter, so, please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, which will form our text of consideration this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole As the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. It is probably impossible for us to appreciate how much emphasis the Jewish people placed upon the command not to work on the Sabbath day. Actually, it was an inordinate emphasis. I mean, think about it. God gave many other commandments to the Jewish people, over 600 actually, but they singled out that one command and virtually elevated it above all the other commands. Not only did they elevate it above all the others, they distorted it by adding to it voluminously. For example, consider the following. One section alone of the Talmud which is the major compilation of Jewish tradition, one section alone has 24 chapters listing Sabbath laws. One law specified that a basic limit for travel on the Sabbath was 3,000 feet from one's house. But various exceptions were provided. If you had placed some food within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it, and because the food was considered an extension of your house, you could then go another 3,000 feet beyond the food. If a rope were placed across an adjoining street or alley, the building on the other side, as well as the alley between, could be considered part of your house. Isn't that ridiculous? You ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> certain objects could be lifted up and put down only from, from and to certain places. Other things could be lifted up from a public place and set down in a private one and vice versa. Still others could be picked up in a wide place and put down in a legally free place. But rabbis could not agree about the meaning of wide and free. There's more. Under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig. But if an object weighed half that amount, he could carry it twice. You could eat nothing larger than an olive, and even if you tasted half an olive, found it to be rotten and spit it out, that half was considered to have been eaten as far as the allowance was concerned. I'm not making this stuff up. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. If the Sabbath overtook you as you reached for some food, the food was to be dropped, before drawing your arm back, lest you be guilty of carrying a burden. These kinds of restrictions were added to every area of life on the Sabbath. Baths could not be taken for fear that some water might spill onto the floor and end up washing it. And you'd be violating, of breaking the, you'd be violating the Sabbath by breaking it by washing your floor. Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might make a furrow on the ground. And then you're farming. A woman was not to look into a mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out on the Sabbath. You could carry ink enough to draw only two letters of the alphabet. And catch this one. False teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. I could go on for a long time. Among the many other forbidden Sabbath activities were sewing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, dyeing cloth, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot, and sewing stitches. That gives you a little bit of an idea about how the Jews elevated the Sabbath command and distorted it by adding to it voluminously. To use a contemporary expression, it was their primary sacred cow. Therefore, it is not surprising that Jesus ended up butting heads with the religious leaders of his day over the issue of the Sabbath. It began in the text we looked at in the last message, on verses 23 through 28 of chapter 2. Remember, the disciples of Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath... And began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they objected. They accused the disciples, and probably Jesus also, of breaking the Sabbath command not to work. According to the Pharisees, plucking wheat from its stem is reaping, rubbing the wheat heads between one's palms is threshing, and blowing away the chaff is winnowing. So you're guilty on all three levels. But Jesus disagreed with their interpretation. He told them that their view of the Sabbath law was inaccurate and distorted. He told them that according to their view, the priests in the temple would be violating the Sabbath by offering the prescribed sacrifices. He told them that the the, the work of the priests in the temple was inferior to his work because he was greater than the temple. He told them that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, Needless to say, all of this did not sit very well with them. But the irritation and the agitation wasn't over. Jesus took another occasion, another opportunity to press this issue. He did not back down. He refused to back down. And that brings us to the story this morning here in chapter 3. We read in verse 1, That Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. This event also took place on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. I want to stress this point as I did in the last message, because there is so much confusion among Christians regarding this subject. The Sabbath is Saturday. It always has been and always will be. God never changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's day because it is the day on which our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. The first day of the week. That's why we meet together on Sundays, not because it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. However, the Sabbath is a non-issue today for us under the new covenant because of passages like Romans 14, 5 and 6, Galatians 4, 9 and 10, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, and others. But when Jesus was here on the earth, the Sabbath was a huge issue among the Jewish people. So this story here in chapter 3 has the same common thread as the previous story at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at last Sunday. Both of them took place on the Saturday Sabbath. You will remember that the previous event took place out in the fields, This event takes place in the synagogue. Luke tells us actually that this event wasn't on the same Sabbath day as the previous event. But Mark pulls the the two accounts together because he wants us to see that these two events were actually the one-two punch that led to the decision to kill Jesus. These two events, beloved, the one we looked at last Sunday and this one that we'll look at this morning, these were the two events that led to the decision to murder Jesus. Jesus often attended the meetings of the synagogue and he often spoke at them. We were were told this back in chapter 1. Do you remember back up just to chapter 1, verse 39, where we read, And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and casting out demons. There were synagogues scattered throughout the land of Israel. There were at least 204 villages just in Galilee. We don't know how many synagogues were in each or if, if every one of those villages had one. But there were lots of synagogues scattered throughout the land of Israel. So we don't, we don't know for sure where the event of chapter 3 took place. It could have been in Capernaum. Jesus adopted hometown. It could have been in Chorazin or Bethsaida or Gamla or a number of other places. It doesn't really matter where it took place. The significant fact is when it took place. It was on the Sabbath. Now back to the story in chapter 3. So verse 2 says, So they, and we find out this is the, the Pharisees, So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. It is very likely that the Pharisees planted this man in the synagogue to force this showdown. They knew that Jesus would attend the synagogue, and they knew that Jesus would have compassion on this man with a withered hand. This verse even tells us that that they watched Jesus closely. We don't don't have to guess why they would have done this because we are given the reason in the last phrase of this verse, it says they were looking for something to use against Jesus. By the way, as a side note to this story, have you ever been in a situation or circumstance of life where an individual or a group of individuals was trying to find something in your words to use against you? Let me tell you, it is a wearying experience. When you know that people are examining everything you say and dissecting everything you say and analyzing everything you say and critiquing everything you say so they can grab hold of something to use against you, that can really wear you down. This is something that Jesus faced throughout his ministry. Various groups were always trying to grab something he said to use it against him. And if they weren't able to find something, they would take what he said and twist it just enough to make it sound really bad. That is heinous. If you are like that in any of your relationships, stop it. That is a wicked way to relate to people. Some husbands are like this with their wives. And some wives are like this with their husbands. But it's not restricted to those relationships. Sadly, it's not an uncommon dynamic in a variety of relationships. So I'll say it again. If you are like this in any of your relationships, stop it. That is a wicked way to relate to people. The Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus and trap Him in His actions, trap Him in His words, looking for anything they could find as a handle. And they thought they had Him now because of their extra-biblical laws. They thought they had Him on this occasion. They figured out a way to really get Him. According to their added rules, if a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given To keep him alive. Listen to this. Treatment to make him improve was declared to be work and therefore forbidden. That was their law. So they thought they had Jesus trapped. This man, with a withered hand, wasn't in a life or death situation. Therefore, according to their view of the Sabbath law, nothing should be done for him on the Sabbath. Do you realize what is going on here? The implication of this verse is that they knew Jesus would be able to heal this man. And they assumed he probably would. That means they were standing face to face with a possible miracle. And yet all they could think about was their man-made rule and how they might trap Jesus. No wonder, Mark tells us later, that Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Here was a man who had been handicapped by this disability for who knows how long, and Jesus has the opportunity to heal him, and yet all the Pharisees could think about was their man-made rule and how they might trap Jesus. And if it is true that they had planted the man to create this scenario, then that demonstrates an even worse hardness of heart. All they want to do is trap Jesus. All they want to do is catch him some way. But Jesus isn't going to be snared by them. His wisdom is brilliant. Instead of being trapped, Jesus goes on the offensive. Notice how he does it. Verse 3 And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Jesus basically accepted their challenge. He calls this man forward in the synagogue. He's not, he's not going to do this privately, he's not going to do this on the side. Jesus has him stand up in their midst. And then Jesus poses a question to the Pharisees. In verse 4, then he asked them, "Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill?" But they kept silent. You see, nothing was lawful to do on the Sabbath according to their interpretation. Nothing was lawful to do on the Sabbath according to their man-made rules. You couldn't do anything. But Jesus forced them to wrestle with the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Jesus knew what God's intention was in the Sabbath law given to the Jewish people. The law was for their good. The law was for their benefit. It was made for man's benefit and God's glory. It was made so that man would take some time off from the rigors of his labor and so that man would take the time to focus on his great and glorious God in worship. That was the purpose of the Sabbath law. It was a good thing, given by a good and gracious God. So it was no contradiction to heal a man of his handicap. Their distortion of the law of God angered jesus their distortion angered our lord not only that had they twisted the law of god and distorted it they had done so in such a way so as to make god out to be cruel and uncaring and harsh and insensitive and unreasonable How unreasonable would it be to say that God's law encouraged meanness and a lack of compassion for others? At the end of chapter 2, as we saw last week, Jesus used the story from Hebrew Scripture to demonstrate that God did not intend for his law to be taken that way. The story that Jesus relayed was of David and his men. They were fleeing from King Saul, who was irrationally trying to kill David. And anyone connected with him. As a result of having to survive on the run, David and his men were out of food. When they arrived at Nob, where the tabernacle was located, they asked the high priest for some food to avoid starvation. The priest informed them that the only bread was the show bread of the tabernacle. There's no other bread, no other food. You will remember that part of the ceremony of the tabernacle involved... Twelve loaves of unleavened bread being placed on the table in the sanctuary. And at the end of the week, they were replaced with fresh ones. The old loaves were then eaten by the priests and, here's the key, only to be eaten by the priests. Only by the priests. But on that occasion, the high priest gave the loaves to David and his men instead of to the priests, And God never condemned David nor the high priest for that action. What was the significance of that? It is this. God did not make a law concerning the priest eating the showbread so as to starve someone who had a legitimate need. That would be so convoluted. That would be so twisted. And the point that Jesus was making was this. Neither did God make the Sabbath law so as to prevent anyone from doing good to help out a person in need. So Jesus has presented an airtight case. There's really nothing the Pharisees can say by way of an an objection to his argument. And that's why the end of verse 4 says, They kept silent. They they couldn't outthink Jesus. Outreason Jesus with Scripture. Verse 5 And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Please notice that Mark says nothing about this man's faith? Nothing. I point this out because many in our day say that healing is available to everyone and the only reason why some people aren't healed is because of their lack of faith. That's a very popular teaching in our day. Everything is based upon faith according to this view. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't line up with all the healing accounts in the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus healed people because of their faith. Absolutely. Sometimes He healed people because of someone else's faith. Remember the four friends who let down the man through the the roof of the house? Nothing is said about that man's faith, but their faith. The friend's faith. So sometimes Jesus healed people because of their faith. Sometimes He healed people because of someone else's faith. And sometimes he healed when there was no faith involved on anyone's part. So it is a simplistic and erroneous statement to say, well, if you have enough faith, Jesus will heal you. Only our Lord himself knows how many people have been confused and disappointed and hurt by that kind of inaccurate teaching that abounds in Christianity today. Nothing is said about this man's faith. Nothing. The text simply tells us that Jesus had the man stand up, come forward, and Jesus told the man to stretch out his hand to be healed. And think about what happened here, beloved. Think about it. Think about people watching this man hold out his withered hand and watching it instantaneously transform into a completely healthy hand. Think about the Pharisees seeing this, but instead of marveling, deciding that they finally had something on Jesus to get him killed. Are you grasping this? I mean, here they are watching this man on whom they should have had compassion, for whom they should have had compassion, watching this man's withered hand be healed, and they say, now we've got Jesus. Now we've got Him. No wonder the first part of this verse says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He wasn't merely angry with them in some kind of self-protective way because they wanted to kill him. He knew that he wasn't going to die until it was the Father's time for him to die. So this wasn't a self-focused or self-centered anger. He was angry that their hearts were so hard that they had no compassion on this man and no interest in the witness this miracle provided them concerning his identity. I mean, this was another proof. This miracle was another proof that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who had come to save them, but they didn't care about any of that. They didn't care about any of it. All they cared about was protecting their own turf. Jesus was a threat to them. It's interesting to note that this is the only... Now, catch this. This is the only explicit reference to Jesus' anger in the New Testament. We usually think he was angry when he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. But it's not explicitly stated. We usually think he was angry when he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. But it's not explicitly stated. Zeal for your house will consume me is what is quoted. Zeal, nothing is said about anger. We usually think he was angry when he blasted the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. When he repeatedly said, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. But it's not specifically stated that he was angry. Here it is explicitly stated that Jesus was angry. And this is the only place in the New Testament where it explicitly states Jesus was angry. It's easy for us to assume that all anger is wrong because the fact of the matter is most anger is wrong. Most of our anger is self-centered and self-focused. It's selfish in some way, but not the anger of Jesus. He was angry. He was grieved. He was distressed, disturbed by their hardness of heart. What hardness of heart. A man with a handicap like this, withered hand, finally, after who knows how long, having relief. And all they can think about is they have something now to trap Jesus with to get him. No wonder Jesus was angry. Beloved, don't read this story without emotion. Don't assume that Jesus was just going through the motions in some mechanical way, doing his thing. There is a lot of emotion here. First of all, he had compassion for this man who was suffering under the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The prophet said the Messiah would be, and that's exactly what Jesus was. There was sorrow in his heart. There was grief when he saw the effects that sin had on this world. He was angry that people would convolute the law of God by suggesting that a man ought to miss out on his opportunity for healing just because it was the Sabbath. He was disgusted that people would distort the law of God in such a way so as to distort the gracious and loving character of God. This is no emotionless Jesus. There is much emotion... In this story. One other thing stands out to me as I contemplate this event. It is amazing to me that Jesus went right after their error. What I mean is, Jesus knew. I mean, he knew full well that the Sabbath issue was a hot button. He knew it was a sacred cow, whichever expression you prefer. He knew that, but he didn't avoid it. He didn't skirt around it. He didn't adopt the the approach that says, don't rock the boat. Just, Just minister to people. Don't stir up controversy. He purposely stirred up controversy by going right after their error. He targeted it. He went right after it. After all, think about this. He could have waited just until sundown. Remember, the Jewish day began at sundown. He could have just waited to sundown, which would have moved it out of the time slot of the Sabbath. And it would have been considered the next day. He could have waited until the next day to heal this man, which didn't have to be the next day. It could just be a few hours till the evening. But he didn't. Oh no, he didn't. He purposely, intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath. And when he did, that was it. That, that was the last straw. I know we're very early in Mark's gospel. Just, we've just moved into the third chapter. But, beloved, you need to see, this is it. This is it. You might assume that, that the, the privilege of wit- witnessing such an amazing miracle would soften their hearts and cause them to change their minds. After all, how many people have ever seen anything like this? How many people have ever been in any kind of worship service And actually seen in a verifiable way. I know there are a lot of claims today. But I'm talking about actually seen, verifiable, someone with a withered hand, stand right up, and the hand be restored perfectly whole. They witnessed something truly miraculous. They witnessed something unique. How did they feel about it? Luke 6.11 tells us that the Pharisees, here's the direct quote, four words. Were Filled with rage. That's how they felt about it. Can you imagine it? They were filled with rage. Not with awe. Not with amazement. Not with wonder. They were furious. And the next verse tells us what they determined to do. Verse 6 Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Beloved, this is the major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. As I said, I know we're early in Mark's gospel. It may seem like, oh, this is too early. All that came later. No, this is it. This is the major turning point. From this point on, he's a marked man. They will get him. They will get him. He's headed for death. Isn't it interesting that a group of men who called a miraculous healing a violation of the Sabbath law had no hesitation to plot murder? Don't you find something sort of contradictory in that? Such is the blinding power of religion. Matthew 12, 14 tells us, That the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And here Mark tells us that this plot involved the Herodians. Now it would be so easy for us to just pass over that quickly and not catch the significance of that. The Herodians. What? I mean a first century reader would say, "What what are you saying? Pharisees and Herodians? No. The Herodians were the Jews of Israel who threw in their lot with Rome and opposed the Pharisees on just about every issue imaginable. But this was one issue on which they could agree, which shows us how desperate they both were to get rid of Jesus. They both detested Jesus because he upset the apple cart. The Pharisees detested him because he upset the control they had over the people religiously. And the Herodians detested him because he upset the control they had over the people politically. So the two groups joined hands in a common cause to destroy Jesus. It was unthinkable that these two groups could join hands for anything. But they found something. Common cause? Let's kill him. Let's destroy him. Whatever we have to do to murder him, to get rid of him, we have to do it. We can't let him go on. Thus, His early death is inevitable. Of course, this this was all within the plan of God. Things aren't spiraling out of control. From a human standpoint, it looks that way. Because these two powerful groups within Israel, the Herodians, the Pharisees, have now determined they will kill Jesus. One way or the other, they'll get it done. So from a human standpoint, it looks like Things are out of control, but from the divine standpoint, God's plan is being carried out exactly. God had pre-planned the death of His Son, but mark it well. Please understand that in no way takes away from the evil and the wickedness of those who plotted to murder the blessed Son of God. They are eventually going to murder Him. And that's the right term, by the way. It was murder. It was a murder. They murdered it, And it all started right here in these two controversies concerning the Sabbath. You can trace it all back to right here. Beloved, aren't you thankful for the sovereignty of God and the sovereign workings of God? It is mind-boggling how he can take the wicked schemes of man, the wicked schemes, of the, in this case, of the Herodians, And the Pharisees, God can take the wicked schemes of man and use them for His own purposes, His own glory, and the good of His people. And that is exactly what He did with the death of His Son. God used the wicked actions of sinful people who murdered the innocent, blameless Son of God to provide for our redemption. God's ways are amazing. You just stop to contemplate them. The way He orchestrates... The way he works. He can take what looks like an impossible situation and bring good out of it. He never loses control. He is worthy of our praise. And he is worthy of our trust. Do you trust him? When things look like they're out of control in your life, do you trust him? Have you trusted his son, Jesus, for your eternal destiny? If not, you need to understand that there's a sense in which you're no different than these who plotted to murder him. What I mean is anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus and refuses to embrace him as Savior and Lord will be sent away from him for all eternity to the judgment of God. So there, that's why I say there's, in a, sense, there's a sense in which it, it, there's no difference. If you hate him and plot to murder him or you just ignore him and refuse to be right with him, you end up the same place. All will end up the same place. So where do you stand with Jesus today? Don't console yourself by saying, well, I'm I'm not like the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. I would never murder anyone. I would never murder Jesus. I just don't want anything to do with Him. You'll end up the same place. You need to submit to Him. You need to yield to Him. Remember, He claimed, we saw it last week, He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord, and the only right response is to submit to him as Lord. I urge you, I urge you to do that if you've never done so. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head in closing this morning, I I seriously really ask you to think about where you stand in relation to Jesus. Whatever you do, don't, don't take comfort in the fact that you, would, you think you would never hate Jesus like these people hated him. That you would never plot to murder him and destroy him. Don't, don't console yourself with that thought. It, it doesn't really matter in a sense. Because if you've not yielded to him as Lord, if you've not submitted to him as Lord, you still will end up separated it from him for all eternity. So ask yourself the question honestly, is Jesus your Lord? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you yielded to him as such? That's That's the question, that's the issue that faces every human being on planet earth. Even if we're not like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, That is a question that faces all of us and must be answered eventually one way or the other. If you're here today without Jesus as your Lord, surrender your heart to him. You can do that right where you are seated, right there in the quietness of your heart. You can call out to the Lord in your heart. He will hear you. You can say, Lord Jesus, I know that you are Lord, and I want to surrender my life to you as such. Forgive me of my sin." Save me. Cleanse me. Take me. Begin making me the man or the woman you want me to be. Make sure you are rightly related to the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. What, a, what an amazing story. It, it really is. To think of this going on. To think of this happening. To think of Jesus challenging the Pharisees, challenging their notions, their views, their interpretations, going right after the issue, forcing the issue, and to think of him healing this man—oh, what what compassion our Lord had for people who suffer—to heal this man, and then to see this really, in a sense, an unbelievable response. It's, it's, it's unbelievable to us, those of us who know and love your Son, the Lord Jesus, because. Because of the transformation of grace in our hearts, we we just can't conceive of that kind of response. But that was the response. And to think that this was the issue, this was the issue that from a human standpoint sealed our Lord's fate. They were going to destroy him eventually, one way or the other. And yet, Father, we know from your word that none of this was outside of your sovereign plan. You always are always in control. You are worthy of our trust, always in life. Even when it feels like things are out of control, even when it looks like things are out of control, you are worthy of our trust. May we always trust. And in closing this morning, Father, we do want to pray for anyone here in, among us, anyone here who has not surrendered to Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. You know the hearts of every person. We, we can't look and see someone else's heart. You know the hearts of every one of us here. And you know where we stand with the Lord Jesus. And for any who are not right with him, may your Holy Spirit bring conviction and draw them to surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Work in our hearts. Work in our lives. According to your good purposes, And may we respond in an obedient way, in a way that pleases you. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.